Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Today we'll be looking at the latest round of cost cuts at two British banks, Standard Chartered and Barclays. Also a look at the US bank results as they finish their quarterly season of reporting and also a look at potential capital issues at JP Morgan. And finally to the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK where Chief Executive Martin Wheatley has been ousted. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Also down the line from Washington, we have Sam Fleming, our US economics editor. First to those cost cuts. Martin, you were writing the other day about both Standard Chartered, where a new chief executive has rejigged the management, and also at Barclays, where we've got some changes leading to cost cuts in both cases. You've been writing quite a bit about Barclays of late and Standard Chartered. They both changed management recently with Bill Winters arriving as the new chief executive of Standard Chartered and John McFarlane taking over as chairman of Barclays and more recently after ousting the chief executive becoming executive chairman with full control. And in both cases, you can see how the new leaders of these banks are preparing to wield the knife in terms of cutting costs. And in both cases, they're um, struggling to bring their cost base under control. It's under pressure from rising compliance costs. In Stan Chart's case, rising Asian wage bill, where the wage inflation is very high, and they compare very unfavorably with rivals, particularly in the US, where it costs US banks typically 55 or $60 per $100 of revenue they generate. In Barclays' case, it's closer to uh, £70 per £100 of revenue they generate. So that's pretty inefficient, and it's an obvious thing for John McFarlane to go after. In Stanchart's case, their cost-income ratio has been rising pretty sharply. It's in the mid-50s, but that compares unfavourably with many of their Asian rivals, and they're mostly, remember, an Asian-focused bank. Let me just bring Laura in there on Barclays because I suspect one of the areas where a lot of attention will be focused is on the investment bank in Barclays and the extent to which the new management structure as it currently exists was seen as a kind of victory for the investment bank with Anthony Jenkins having rowed semi-publicly with Tom King, the head of the investment bank. Does this mean that there won't be as many cuts in the Barclays investment bank or is that just a false reading of things? I think it probably means that there are still going to be very deep cuts, but those cuts will be of a more sensible and of a more nuanced variety. So the view was very much that Anthony Jenkins was just going to cut everything. So it looks now as if it will be more piece by piece. But the point around the whole cost base of the UK banks versus the cost base in the US kind of goes to Barclays Investment Bank as well, because while certainly the banks in the UK have not been able to get the same kind of cost income or efficiency ratios as the banks in the US, partly because the UK banks have had these very complicated like margin structures, they've become floated. 
There's also an inherent difference between the economies of scale in the US market and what you could ever possibly achieve in the UK. I mean, if you look at, say, Barclays Investment Bank, doing investment banking in Europe is structurally more expensive than doing it in the US. There is no two ways around it. In the US, say, on any given deal, you have one team which does sector, you have one team which does product. In Europe, you have sector product and you also have one team to do the country. The European market is an incredibly fragmented market. And if you look at the US banks, a big part of the reason that they have these very good cost to income ratios, it's partly because they are in the biggest banking market in the world. They have a very homogeneous market across that. So that allows them massive economies of scale in a way which the European banks could never really hope for. Finally, John McFarlane said to me when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago that he compared Barclays to Canadian and Australian banks, which have cost-income ratios in the 40s or 50s. And ANZ in Australia, which he ran for a decade, has a cost-income ratio below 45%. And he said, why can't we be like that at Barclays? These banks have got a similar business mix to Barclays. Why can't we achieve that? So he's really setting the bar very high or more low in terms of cost-income ratio. Yeah. So let's see how he uh, gets let's on next week he... when they report interim results. Absolutely. Well, talking of interim results, let me come back to you, Laura, for a quick roundup on the US bank numbers which have come in over the last week or so. Generally pretty good for everybody except Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I mean, overall we had an excellent earnings quarter except Goldman Sachs, which is unusual because Goldman tends to be the one who usually is able to weather all the storms. But this time they were hit by $1.45 billion of legal costs and part of that related to issues around the US mortgage-backed securities, which Goldman is the last bank to settle. So because they took less pain in previous quarters, they have more pain now. But if you look at it across the pack more broadly, certainly there's a lot of confidence in US investment banks in particular. I mean, in Citibank, we had the second expectation beating earnings pretty much ever. I mean, talking to analysts over there, they can't remember a single time when City has come out so well because they had the best earnings quarter in eight years when they did first quarter. So City is being held up as this example of a global bank where they've gone, they've tried to simplify and they are now getting a lot of rewards from that. Now, it has been helped by the markets. Equities was a good performer pretty much across the pack. In the US, there has been a revet in the mortgage market and a lot of these banks would have very big mortgage operations as well. They are anticipating a rise in interest rates in the US towards the end of the year. That will help their earnings as well. The only soft spot was, um, well, the kind of big soft spot was uh, around the FIC, which is the fixed income trading. That was down pretty much across the pack, most painfully for Goldman, where their FIC trading was down like 28%, which is big. But across the other pack, like JP Morgan, we're down 10% for FIC as well. So FIC is looking a bit soft, but overall things are looking pretty good from the US results. Now, there was another nagging worry for JP Morgan. Martin, the point made by the Fed in looking at JP Morgan's capital strength, they've highlighted a $12 billion shortfall. Give us your gen on that assessment. Well, this is a capital surcharge that the Fed is requiring the biggest and most systemically important and in theory, riskiest banks to add to their basic capital requirements. And the Fed says it's going deliberately further than the minimums required by the Basel Committee. And it's got a a sliding scale in terms of how complex and how systemically important each of these banks are. And JP Morgan is the biggest and and most systemically important. And their add-on on top of the 7% minimum is 4.5%, which takes them to 11.5% target by 2019. And the Fed says that they are $12.5 billion short of that 
which sounds like a lot, but they've obviously got four years to get there. Very profitable bank. But the key thing, I think, as much as the extra capital that the banks will hold, is it's the message that the Fed, the most important financial regulator out there, is trying to send to the banks. And if you listen to what Janet Yellen, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said, you know, she said a key purpose of the capital surcharge is to acquire the firms themselves to bear the costs that their failure would impose on others. In practice, this rule will confront these firms with a choice. They must either hold substantially more capital, reducing the likelihood they will fail, or else they must shrink their systemic footprint, reducing the harm that their failure would do to our financial system. So, Sam, the Fed is uh, seemingly talking pretty tough with these SIFI surcharges, the extra capital that the big banks are going to have to hold. It only seems to be particularly bad news for JP Morgan, though. Yeah, when the Fed put forward its draft rules first back in December, Stanley Fisher, who's vice chair of the Fed, revealed that the capital shortfall under this new city surcharge regime it was introducing was entirely attributable to J.P. Morgan Chase, and at that time stood at more than $20 billion. Uh, since then, um, through various changes to the balance sheet, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, reduced the, the shortfall uh, to around $12.5 billion. So uh, it's obviously a large number by any, by any normal standards, but it's perfectly manageable for J.P. Morgan. Yes. And just a quick word on the other banks. There's no issues there at all. And the new SIFI rules are already kind of part of their existing capital structures, effectively. Yeah, the Fed was quite explicit about this. Uh, it said that all the other banks are actually in line already with these new requirements. Um, I mean, the eight banks involved, apart from City and J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, State Street and Bank of New York Mellon. And Bank of New York Mellon being at the top of the uh, tree in terms of how much extra capital has to hold under this regime. But the rest are in line. So it's really a J.P. Morgan Chase issue. But, but I think more broadly, uh, it is a, a big message from the, uh, the Fed about its continuing attempts to tackle too big to fail banks uh, on the anniversary of uh, Todd Frank. Well, that's, I suppose the, the final point I was going to ask you, actually, was to what extent are the numbers less important? Uh, as we said, this capital deficit should be closable fairly straightforwardly for an institution of the size and complexity of JP. But does it signal beyond that that actually the Fed is going to keep pressure on them particularly and on Jamie Dimon particularly and there are are going to be other new rules that are brought in and other actions that the Fed will bring forward to tackle JP? Yeah, I mean, right now there is a fevered debate going on on this anniversary of Dodd-Frank in Washington about whether it's too tough, uh, the new regulation, whether it's uh, stifling the economy. Uh, The bank lobbyists uh, yesterday were saying that these new surcharges will uh, take money out of the U.S. economy or the time when it needs uh, cash to recover. A lot of people, obviously, uh, economists would, would differ with that and say that higher capital is a good thing for lending. So I think that the pressure will continue from the Fed. Certainly the Fed was talking yesterday about whether it should incorporate these new surcharges into its stress testing regime, which would ramp up that pressure. I haven't made a decision on that yet. But um, the rhetoric coming from Janet Yellen and Daniel Turullo, who's her lieutenant on regulation, was quite strong about the risk of banks imposing the cost of their own failure on others and on society as a whole. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's tough stuff from the Fed. And a lesson that we need to keep watching the Fed, not just for monetary policy, but also for bank regulation. 
Let's move on to our third and final topic and news within the past few days that the Financial Conduct Authority has shaken up its top management with Martin Wheatley being ousted as chief executive. It was a pretty dramatic move, but I guess, Caroline, it's proof positive that George Osborne meant what he said in last month's Mansion House speech when he suggested that the times have changed and that we're into a new era now in terms of the government and policymakers' attitudes to the city. Absolutely. Osborne, during his Mansion House speech in June, called for a new settlement with the city. And I think that plus then uh, the announcement that the bank levy is going to be recalibrated and also now Martin Wheatley's resignation slash defenestration mark a new era for financial services in the UK. Absolutely. It was In some ways, a lot of people working in the city, a lot of institutions will be jumping up and down with glee over the past few days over this decision. Martin Wheatley had not made many friends in his time in charge of the FCA. But I suppose from a consumer point of view, that's exactly what you would want. You don't want someone who's too cosy with the institutions they're regulating. Absolutely. Martin Wheatley fully delivered on the brief that he was given by Osborne back in 2010. And if we rewind five years, you'll remember that the coalition government pledge was to break up the old Financial Services Authority, replace it with a tough conduct regulator in the shape of the FCA, and then the Prudential Regulation Authority under the Bank of England. And Martin Wheatley was seen as this tough enforcer. He'd had a relatively successful tenure in Hong Kong, and he was brought in as the outsider to head up this tough new FCA that was going to be a consumer champion. So Martin really did what he was told, but the problem has been that the regulatory pendulum swings far more slowly than political expediency does. And we're now in a new era of growth and jobs and competitiveness being the mantra of the day rather than banker bashing. So where does that leave the future management of the FCA? Who is going to run the regulator going forward? And are they just going to be a soft touch? Soft touch, uh, I think they would uh, rail against that. In the long term, the person to replace Wheatley, I think the Treasury will obviously have the final say on that. In the interim, there's going to be Tracy McDermott, who is head of supervision at the moment. She has very much been the rising star of the FCA. She was head of enforcement when the FCA levied record fines in the LIBOR and foreign exchange rigging scandals. She's been very much groomed for the top, and it's no accident that she was put into the supervisory role when Clive Adamson had to step down following that unfortunate debriefing fiasco that caused shares in the UK's major insurers to plummet. So she's very much the inside contender, but I think, realistically speaking, the Treasury is going to want its own man or indeed woman in that top job from March onwards. Well, not least because I suppose she's very much part of that old tough regime. Absolutely. I mean, she's very much in the same mould as Martin, which is uh, to be the tormentor in chief of the banking industry. Well, it'll be very interesting to see who they choose and whether it indeed reinforces that perception that times have changed uh, in terms of government attitudes. That's all for today. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline, Martin and Laura here in the studio and also to thank Sam down the line from Washington. Thank you too for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.